listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this day, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said vehemently, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of them said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. He came and found them sleeping, and he said, to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And once more he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to say to him. He came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Look, my betrayer is at hand. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. And with him there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. So when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Then they laid hands on him and arrested him. But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me, as though I were a rebel? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. All of them deserted him and fled. A certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. <clears throat> Thank you, Kurt, for that reading. 
long reading. How are you guys doing? Good, good. Excellent. I heard a good from up there. Um, <clears throat> before we dive in, um, I do have one announcement I want to highlight. There are a ton of announcements in the bulletins today. Uh, we got so much good stuff starting up. Um, some ministries have been off for the summer. Some stuff uh, that's brand new. Uh, there's info about choir, lunch bunch, youth group. A lot of good stuff. Uh, one thing I want to make sure I highlighted, though, is sermon talkback. Uh, for anyone who uh, wasn't with us pre-pandemic, we used to do this little thing called sermon talkbacks where about once a month, uh, a bunch of us would hang out in the sanctuary after the service, and we would talk through the last few sermons, kind of Q&A style, a place to bring any questions and, and things like that. It was a really good time. Um, and we haven't done Sermon Talk Back in person in over two years now, but I am happy to report that it is returning in two weeks, uh, Sunday, September 18th. So mark your calendars. Um, that's the same week as Gathering Table, so if you're planning to stay for the meal, that'll give us uh, something to do uh, in the interim. Uh, kids are welcome to join us as well. Personally, I love the chaos. Uh, so this is, this is for anyone, um, and we'll be making that a monthly thing on third Sundays for the fall. With that out of the way, uh, let's dive into our passage, because there is a lot here. Uh, as Kurt already mentioned, this is our second week with the same scripture. Um, last week, we talked about how this section is a sandwich, which, Kurt, you, you uh, teed that up perfectly. Mark uses this storytelling method that we call um, sandwiching, where he basically puts two stories together. If we can go to the next slide. Perfect. He'll put two stories together. He takes the first story cuts it in half, and basically shoves another one right in the middle like a sandwich. And in this passage, we've got three scenes. <clears throat> the first scene is where Jesus tells the disciples they're going to fall away. Next slide. Perfect. Um, then we get a second scene where Jesus is praying in the garden. Then we get a third scene where the disciples fall away. We see this, the sandwich structure? Excellent. Um, last week, we covered the front and back ends of this. I like that you called it the carbs. Uh, we talked about the disciples. Uh, we focused specifically on Peter and Judas and how they both betrayed Jesus in very unique ways. Um, if you weren't for, here for that, you're going to want to go on our website and listen to the sermon you missed, because we're not going to talk about any of that today. Today, we are focusing on this central part of the sandwich, the middle section, where Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples are keeping watch badly, um, and Jesus goes to God in prayer, as he's done many times before, knowing full well what's about to happen to him. In less than 24 hours, Jesus is going to be dead on a Roman cross. Justice, if we could call it that, um, flowed quickly back then. Uh, Jesus knows this, and he's terrified. I want to reread the first part of this middle scene again, just to help reorient us. Um, when I read this, focus on the emotion words here. What feelings, what emotions do you see in Jesus? Uh, we're going to start at verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with them Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. 
Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. What emotions, this is a question, what emotions, what feeling words um, do you see from Jesus in this passage? Anybody? Distress. What was he? Agitated, grieved, sorrow, fear. Anything else? Sadness. Desperation, that's a, great, that's a great word for it. Loneliness here, he's very much alone. Yeah. Acceptance. Say a little bit more about that. Yeah. Yeah. Resignation. Resignation, I think you could read it either way. Resignation, acceptance, yeah. This is huge, you guys. Um, Mark has not shown us a lot of emotion from Jesus. Uh, we've been in this book for almost a year. This is the first time we get insights into what Jesus is thinking, what he's feeling. Um, here in the garden, the focus shifts to Jesus' kind of internal thoughts and struggle. Um, Jesus is scared. He knows where this path is leading. He knows he's the only one who can walk it, and he's going to have to do it alone. I want to make sure we understand this. This is not the story of some happy martyr who's like victoriously embracing their fate. Jesus is scared, and believe it or not, that fear was a big issue for the first Christians and the early church. This was a culture, like Greco-Roman society, that held up martyrs as heroes. A martyr's death was, a, was an honorable death, a heroic death. It was a sign of bravery to face death unafraid. Have you guys ever heard of Socrates or Socrates for any Bill and Ted fans? Any? I'm so glad that got laughs. So, yeah, anyway. Um, um, <laughs> I never know if pop culture references are going to land here. Um, Socrates or Socrates uh, was a Greek philosopher who was put to death right around 400 B.C. He was sentenced to die by poisoning. They made this guy drink hemlock. Um, and the way Socrates' disciples told the story, this guy was not afraid of death in the slightest. Um, he had multiple chances to escape prison, turned them down. Um, he gave his captors an earful at his, you know, hearing. Then he, like, defiantly took the poison, drank it down, and then sat down and continued having his conversation like he'd be ha been having before, like nothing had happened. At least that's how they told the story. That was the ideal. Socrates, or Socrates, was viewed as a hero because he faced death so bravely. We have writings from some early Greek critics of Christianity who reject the faith because of this scene, Mark's depiction of Jesus here. They say he's way too emotional. Um, um, he's, he's a coward. No self-respecting God would behave in this way. Now, thankfully, uh, we've advanced as a species since then, Beyond all that, you know, toxic, macho garbage, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, not at all. Not, not so much. Not in the slightest. If, if anything, it's probably worse in the church, right? Ugh. Be that as it may, though, I think for emotionally mature folks among us, at least, we are a lot more open to seeing this uh, display of emotion from Jesus than they were back then at least. We, um, we see this not as a sign of weakness, but as something that helps us relate to Jesus. It helps humanize him. 
In fact, for many of us today, this passage raises an entirely different set of questions and issues, and it has to do with how God is depicted in this scene. Why does Jesus have to die? Like, why would God the Father require something so horrible? Why is that the plan to save humanity? Surely there had to be a better way to do this. Jesus prays, take this cup from me. Why doesn't God the Father do it? This is a question I've heard from a number of you over the years. Um, I even got a few emails last week from folks Um, We didn't even talk about this part of the story, Um, asking basically that question, why does Jesus have to die? Why is the cross the key to salvation? It seems kind of barbaric, and it makes God the Father seem like kind of a monster if he's forcing Jesus into this. Why did Jesus have to die? Now, ultimately, um, there is a level of mystery here. We're not going to crack this in 20 minutes. I want to make sure our expectations are clear. Um, We even did a series on this topic, if you remember, all the way back in spring of 2020. Do you guys remember spring of 2020? (sighs) Yeah, it was quite a time. Uh, At the start of spring, we were all so young and so innocent. Um, That's when COVID first hit. Uh, We started doing services online during this series, actually. Uh, We were all spraying our groceries with bleach and saying, oh, this will be a month, tops, right? Uh, Good times. Uh, We did a whole series, six weeks, called Metaphors on the Cross, where we looked at different ways Christians through the years have understood the death of Jesus. And clearly, we didn't crack the code, because you guys have been asking me about it ever since. Why does Jesus have to die? Why doesn't his prayer in the garden get answered in the affirmative? The answer a lot of Christians will give is that it was all part of God's plan, which honestly doesn't sound like a very good plan. Um, It's also not a very satisfying answer to the question, in my opinion. If we're going to understand the death of Jesus, we have to view it in light of his mission and the story so far. I want to say that one more time because that's important. If we're going to understand the death of Jesus, we have to understand it in light of his mission and the story so far. Think back on the story that we've been reading together these past 11 months or so. Jesus has been very busy in the first 13 chapters of Mark's gospel, would you say? Um, We've seen this guy systematically tear down every barrier standing between human beings and God. Everything that pollutes our hearts, robs us of joy, and he's got a pretty peculiar way of doing it. Jesus delivers us by entering into our experience. He enters into our pain, our shame, our guilt, our hurt, takes it upon himself, and brings about healing. It's a strange way to do it. Uh, The fancy word for this is incarnation, by the way. Uh, Not reincarnation, that's a different thing. Um, But incarnation, entering in. Jesus enters into our stuff in order to restore us. All the way back in Mark chapter 1, one of his very first healings, Jesus touches a guy with leprosy and heals him. Now, normally, if you touch someone with leprosy, you get leprosy right? Like, that's, that's how it generally works. But Jesus touches a leper, 
and heals him. When Jesus touches someone who is unclean, they become clean. Uh, Jesus hangs out with outcasts, sinners, people who've been cut off by society, disowned by the religious establishment, disowned by their own families. The powers that be call Jesus a drunk and a sinner for associating with outcasts, but when Jesus hangs out with an outsider, they become an insider. Jesus becomes the focus of society's ire and angst, and the outcast is set free. We've seen Jesus heal the sick, cast out demons, calm storms, even forgive sins, and that's all before he gets to the cross. The last major barrier between human beings and God is death, right? If God is the source of life, then death is that final frontier, that last mountain to be overcome. If Jesus can save us from death, that's the game, right? How do you suppose Jesus is going to conquer death? The guy who touches the unclean and makes them clean? The guy who joins with outcasts and makes them insiders? The guy who enters into our sorrow to bring about liberation? How is he going to conquer death? By dying. Right. That's the way of incarnation. That's the story. That's what Jesus has been doing this whole time. It's obvious if you know the story. But that still doesn't answer the question of why this death? Why the cross? I googled ugly cross, and that's the, that's the picture I found. Why such a brutal and terrible way to go? Why couldn't Jesus have just lived like a nice, quiet life in the mountains somewhere? and passed away from natural causes at like the ripe old age of a hundred or something. Couldn't he have done that and still risen on the third day in theory? Why this death? I'll do you one better. Um, What if Jesus had died in any one of the myriad of ways people tended to die back then? There were a lot of ways to die uh, in the first century. Uh, They didn't have modern medicine. They didn't have vaccines. Infant mortality was over 60%. What if Jesus had been like thrown from a horse? hit by a camel, slipped in the bathtub. Like, (laughs) why not literally any other way to go? What's that? He died a sinner's death. Absolutely. This is where, again, I think we need to view Jesus' death in light of the story so far and his mission. Throughout this story, Jesus has been making a claim to ultimate authority, right? Jesus has been challenging, like, every source of authority. He's put himself in a place greater than all principalities, all systems, greater than any king or magistrate. You don't do that in the Roman Empire and live to tell about it. Jesus has consistently condemned human violence as well. That's been a big theme. He's condemned state violence, teaching his followers to love their enemies, uh, turn the other cheek, put the sword away. How do you think he's going to prove it? How is Jesus, the guy who touches the unclean and makes them clean, how is he going to expose the insanity of state violence and our broken legal system? How is he going to prove once and for all that he is king of kings and lord of lords and not Herod or Pilate or Caesar or any other power? How do you think Jesus is going to do that? 
by handing himself over to them. By letting Caesar do his absolute worst. Beating him, flogging him, submitting him to a sham trial, crucifying him, and then walking out of that tomb three days later. You don't have to know the future to know that Jesus is headed for the cross. That's what they did to people like Jesus back then. That's what we still do to people like this today. We just have more humane ways of doing it, maybe. Takes a lot longer, at least. Jesus' fate was sealed the moment he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, being hailed as king. This guy has offended the religious establishment, the political establishment. He's challenged Herod and the temple. There's only one way that ends. He knows that. Jesus is smart enough to know where this is heading. The disciples don't see it, but they don't pay attention much. He knows his mission is taking him to the cross. He's already talked about it like a dozen times up to now. And it's that reality, his proximity to this violent culmination, that scares him and leads him to pray. Let's put this prayer up here on the slides. Jesus' prayer, verse 36. Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. It's a beautiful prayer. It's simple, it's honest. On a practical level, I think this is a great prayer for those impossible moments in our lives. This would be a good one to have memorized and at the ready for those times that we feel scared and alone. When we're dreading something that we know is coming. Those times when we aren't sure if we're going to be able to do this, when we aren't sure what God is up to or if God's even there in the first place, it's a beautiful prayer. There's three parts to this prayer. We've got the first part highlighted. Jesus begins by acknowledging the power of God. Father, for you all things are possible. This is something that I don't think I do enough when I pray. Like, when I pray, I don't really think about the power we are tapping into when we pray. Like, we are not just politely making requests of the sky, right? Like, that's, that's, not, that's not the idea. No, we believe that when we pray, we are communing with the animating power of the universe. That's kind of terrifying. It makes me feel really small. Begin with that. Begin from that place of humility and faith acknowledging the power of God. From there, the second part of this prayer is very honest. Jesus tells God what he wants. Remove this cup from me. I'm scared, God. I know this is what I've been working toward. It's what we've been building toward. I've been talking about this for three years. Now that it's here, I don't know if I'm ready. I don't know if I can do this alone. I thought I had some friends... Right? I thought I had a posse. These 12 guys can't even stay awake for an hour. How often do our prayers lack this level of honesty? Right? This level of being raw and real. I find myself like mumbling the words, right? Like, God, if it's okay, it be your will. I don't want to ask too much, right? 
That's not what Jesus' prayer looks like. That's not what prayer looks like in the Bible. Be honest with God. Tell God where your heart is, where you're coming from, what you want. Be real about your doubts and your fears. That's how Jesus prays. That's how the Psalms pray when the psalmist is like, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Be real with God. You're not going to offend the creator of the universe. God can take it. The last part of this prayer is key. Not my will, but your will. Or we pray every week, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As much as we need to be honest with God and real with God, as much as we need to tell God what we want, that's not the ultimate final purpose of prayer. The ultimate end of prayer is to align our hearts with God's, to align our will with God's will. This is speculation, but I don't think Jesus sees this whole thing through if he hadn't already built up this habit of regularly retreating by himself to pray to God. Going off alone to pray, seeking God's will, learning to see the world through God's eyes, that perspective changes everything. God's not a monster who's forcing Jesus onto the cross. If anything, God looks a lot more like Jesus in this story. This passage shows us how much salvation cost God, which is kind of a crazy sentence to say about the animating power of the universe. It shows us how determined Jesus was to save us that he went all the way. He could have stopped short of death, right? Like, Jesus could have done the healing, the forgiving of sins, restore outsiders to community. He could have stopped there, and we would have a really good ethical model to follow. We could all live a nice moral life, and then that would be it. But he goes further. He could have stopped short of unseating the principalities and powers, exposing the insanity of state violence. Jesus could have just focused on the spiritual stuff, right? He could have founded a new religion to give us a nice little escape, a little bit of hope amidst our existence under the principalities of this world, but he doesn't. He takes it all the way. Conquering death, toppling Caesar, and overcoming the cross in order to set us free. It cost him everything. But that's how much he loves us. That's how determined Jesus is to save us, to fulfill his mission of tearing down every last barrier between human beings and God. It's a mission we celebrate every time we come to this table. It's the hope we profess It's the new reality that we literally imbibe when we remember the death of our Lord through the bread and the cup. Let's pray. God, we thank you for going all the way to save us. Thank you for your love and your determination tear down every last barrier separating us from you. 
Thank you for collaborating with your son to save us from death, from sin, from Caesar, to set us free. God, help us to live into that freedom as we remember the death of your son. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.